This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 33. Uh, and with me, Corey Morningstar in Toronto. Hi, Corey. Hey, hi, John. Uh, Johan Edebo uh, in Sweden, the north of Sweden. Hi, Johan. Hi. Uh, and Hiroyuki Hamada uh, in New York, Long Island. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, so uh, uh, we talked a little bit about um, certain topics for for this podcast. Uh, I always feel there's there's a surplus of of things to talk about. It's extraordinary. Uh, but but Corey, you you had a couple of of notes. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you at the top here. God, I have so many notes. Well, I guess first we could touch on since the last um, podcast we did together, I, I remember I had made a comment, something about um, as spectators, we're spectators to the spectacle. And then I was listening to some a couple of podcasts that I had missed last week or during the past week. And I think it's podcast 31, Johan made a really good point that I, sh I thought I should bring back into the spectator um, comment commentary about the Krauser's propaganda, he called it the participatory um, propaganda. And I think he also called it horizontal propaganda. And so I just want to sort of wrap, bring that back into the fold that not only are we spectators, but also, um, you know, we're the producers. Um, so we play more than one role within that. And we're actually spreading, part of spreading this fear, you know, part of this machine, we're a mechanism in the machine spreading the fear, right? We're like the unpaid exploited labor and we're not even really aware of that, even as the teachers of AI, right? Like we're the ones teaching the machine. So I, I just, you know, that's one thing I, I just made a little note of. Um, no, I think that's really important. And I know Johan sent me an, an email um, or a couple of them this, this week. And he was talking about the, the what he called the pathologization um, of dissent. And that felt somehow um, connected to this as well. But, but maybe Johan, you can comment on that rather than, than me. Mm. Well, I think this, uh, what I was trying to express with this concept of crowdsourced propaganda, I, I try to relate it to the horizontal propaganda is an old term from the classical analysis of propaganda, but I think social media in, in particular adds many new dimensions to, to the phenomenon. First and foremost, I think uh, it serves to, to refine frame and disseminate our points of view in line with the, the established ideological order in a, in a particular sense. Because whatever you write, all, all propaganda that is reproduced in social media is always uh, socially affirmed. It's provided in a context of interaction. So uh, every ideologically charged position, so to speak, is always immediately framed in relation to your social role, your identity, and your emotional associations with your peers. And maybe that's a, a starting point to discuss. Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, and, and I, I, 
I felt this, I, I have felt this a lot the last few weeks um, here in Norway because there have been a few journalists, not many, um, voicing uh, dissent about the lockdowns and restrictions because there's literally nobody sick right now. And yet Oslo is completely locked down. Other parts of the country are locked down. And, and the people that are really just asking questions um, and, and asking the government to, to please respond and explain you know, their decisions and their policy. And, and there's no explanation forthcoming. It's extraordinary. Uh, and, and the people who ask these questions are stigmatized immediately on social media. I mean, they're ridiculed. They're called, of course, conspiracy theorists, um, crackpots. Uh, one was called a Maoist, as if that were a bad thing. But uh, the attacks are, are, are extensive. And, and um, you, you see, you know, 100 comments and 99 of them are negative. Uh, and, and I find that amazing. There has been, this is like a huge topic, but there has been an enormous collective in all Western countries, a buy-in to, to the government narrative. Now, at the same time, I noticed there's been huge protests in the Netherlands, in Austria, in Ireland, um, and, and really, uh, and Greece, I think as well. Uh, so, so not everybody is buying it. There's, there's a split, but, but social media is, um, is kind of diabolical. There's, it, it really encourages, a, a this kind of lynch mob mentality. And we've talked about that, but yeah, I, 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 I think we, the problem, one of the problems, and you, I turn this over to you guys. One of the problems is you see this happening. You see a critic say something, dissenting voice, and they're attacked. And people say, I don't even want to talk about the, of that conspiracy theory stuff. Mm. And they equate questions and dissent and, and criticism of, say, the quick rollout of this vaccine, criticism of Gates and the Gates Foundation or whoever it is, um, the Great Reset, all of it there is seen as dangerous people it's as if you are infected with a particular virus your own virus the virus of dissent um and and people get quite quite angry and and um you know i mean i've seen mainstream journalists talk about um people should be you know put in jail for for not wearing a mask not not um, accepting a vaccine, you should not be allowed to go anywhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's this, you know, pathologizing of of dissent and criticism, questioning. It's extraordinary, I think. And I mean, this this is an old strategy. Michel Foucault, right, wrote a major dissertation on the entire how how madness functions as the the normalizing, uh, contrasting opposition to the system and the history of, of the modern civilization and so on. But I think this, uh, this situation we're seeing exacerbates this process and uh, kind of uh, uh, refines it in, in an immediate way because it's always, it's already framed immediately. You can't have a discussion with, without this, uh, this framing of, of the system and social media. So. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Corey, let's go back to to some of that the stuff. And also, I wanted to mention this this article because this this feeds into this the article that we talked about before recording on on food in Africa. If you want to, I'll provide the link when we post this podcast. But um, I think it's a, it, an example of the kind of thing people need to learn to read critically, you know, um, I mean, the article itself is critical, but, but the information needs to be looked at critically. And I feel, you know, the default position for so many people is to, is to, to have voided any kind of skepticism. Um, you want me to talk about that article, John? If you want, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I was thinking, I'm not like, assigning anything here. I'm just, I, you know, okay. I think um, what you guys were talking about, about this whole uh, virus thing, it's almost over the past 10 years as a followed purpose who's behind um, working in partnership with the United Nations to, to create a global uptake for the vaccines. And they work with um, Google, they work with, with the biggest corporations on the planet now, and that's a, the for-profit arm of Avaz. And, you know, their whole thing has been harnessing, harnessing energy to get what you want, basically, right? Like that's the whole concept, behavioral change, behavioral engineering. Um, but this whole vaccine thing, it's almost like um, it's a patriotism. It's almost like um, it gives people a sense of purpose, right? Which they did not have. I mean, they keep telling um, multi-transnational corporations, the businesses that have that, you know, basically brand themselves with purpose will be the ones that, um, you know, gain ground and, and become the dominant players in the future. But I think that's sort of how that this whole COVID thing is attaching itself to the populace. People see their see themselves formerly with no purpose. A lot of people, you know, who have come basically consumers and non-thinking people in, um, you know, devolving non, you know, we don't really have any culture over here. So these people are attaching themselves to this virus thing, it seems to me, as it gives them a sense of shared purpose, right? Um, that's Absolutely. something. Yeah. And so the seed article that you're referring to jumping away from that for a moment, um, it's written by Vandana Shiva, who does some great work. I'm not 100% um, enthralled with her only because she's been signing on to on the financialization of nature documents with we mean with the Club of Rome who's attached to the World Economic Forum and we mean business. Um, she's you know, does some keynotes for um, C40 Cities, which is Clinton and Bloomberg. But regardless, this is a really another well-written article by Shiva. And it's just talking about the consolidation of food, basically, in the seed banks and um, Gates um, predominantly behind it. And it's just another example of where this whole thing is headed as people are um, distracted by, you know, Oprah and nonsense about, you know, monarchy and everything else. This is happening. And we've got the, the global consolidation of food, of seed, of water, of health, right, of, of everything. Like it's consolidating this in real time, right? And we're not even paying attention. And, and so it is about, about framing and about, um, you know, how it's framed and distraction and spectacle. And then, um, you know, the more I was thinking the other day, the more we move on into the digital world, 
I mean, how will we ever stop the military industrial complex online? We won't. I mean, you right. could have you could have eight billion people sign a petition today calling for the end of, you know, um, end of war at the end of militarism that, you know, and it will make no difference whatsoever. Nothing. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, two things I just want to quickly touch on and then maybe Johan or Hiroyuki can can say something here. But but the the <clears throat> that the the. The narrative for COVID, the mainstream narrative for the lockdowns, the, the Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, um, World Health Organization narrative that has clearly informed the policy of, of you know, most Western countries, certainly Norway, um, th- that uh, it functions the the people who embrace this and and the virtue signaling that comes with mask wearing and the the scolding of people who don't wear masks and the pointing of fingers and and social distancing and this hyper kind of hyper vigilance a disproportionate fear i mean and we we need to remind everyone again that the mortality figures for corona are very low uh but but it's almost irrelevant at this point. Numbers are irrelevant. And so, yeah, I think it gives people um, a sense of purpose, but it's almost a religious um, attachment to this. It, it is, I was reading, I was doing this blog post, so all these strange things are in my head, but I was writing about this, the, um, the, the, the sort of Joachite triad um, or Joachite triad, uh, you know, of, of the 13th century and, and um, the, the durability of that for a couple of hundred years afterwards and that the Third Reich was, was um, a statement that kind of borrowed from that. The term itself was, was Joachite and that, that, that it allows people this, this sort of eschatological um, <clears throat> Uh, narrative or at least that it has elements of that and it allows people to feel they are living in this important moment in time mm. and um, a, a transitional moment to this rebirth it's like both end times and rebirth almost mm. simultaneously it's so condensed now and I think that that's absolutely what's happening because there's no rational reason for for um, for seeing children walking around in masks, for example, and and social distancing distancing at at you know kindergarten level, and I've seen this, and it's um it's stunning, and um a lot. It reminds me in terms of the emotional the emotional register in which it takes place. It reminds me of the recovered memories debacle of whatever it was thirty some years ago. Um, the sort of hysteria that accompanied that. And suddenly people were seeing satanic cults um, abducting children everywhere. And people went to jail. People did a decade in prison um, that were completely innocent uh, because the recovered memories thing was, was a sham, um, was junk science, was fake. So, so these agendas take on a life of their own and they gain momentum. And that's clearly on some level what's happening here. And the vaccine, as, as Phil Grieve said, you know, functions as, as like a baptism. But anyway, that's, 
my contribution to that. But then just quickly, and then I'm going to turn it over. I, don't want, um, I keep getting criticized for talking too much. Um, the, the, this new scramble for Africa is absolutely, I mean, it's, it, and I don't want to dwell on this because I'll just provide the link and people should read it, but it, it, it seamlessly fits with this sort of neo-colonial uh, mindset and it fits with the eugenics uh, narrative that underlies so much of this stuff that you see from Attenborough and, you know, um, Jane Goodall, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, it it is the the depopulation agenda is um, is is somehow fits very very well with this. Anyway, okay, let me turn it over to to Johan. Oh, I just have a, a brief remark, and there's so much to to uh, tag along with here. So so, but I'll, I just have a brief remark, and then a question to both Corey and and uh, Hiroyuki regarding. Um, uh, the financialization of nature, but <clears throat> first of all, we, we had a, I think it was uh, last Saturday, we had a major demonstration in, in Stockholm uh, uh, in protest of the lockdowns and so on. And as, as an example, I mean, there, there was the usual uh, plethora of the perspectives and, and, and so on, but I think many, many people who attended were we're not radical, radical rights or, or in any suspect political organization, but the framing was immediately that this, this is a bunch of insane people. These are tinfoil hats, the, the conspiracy theorists and so on. And, and this framing was immediately reproduced all over social media. So even if perhaps 80% of people were neutral to the situation, this, uh, this 20% that uh, reproduced the, the framing immediately came to control and dominate the narrative and colored the entire reception, the entire discussion everywhere, even in, in radical left circles, because the elder, these guys were only Nazis and, and so on. Uh, but also I have, a, I have a couple of friends who are doing a research project on something they call rights of nature and they're legal scholars and they're going to uh, explore the, the the foundations for attributing uh, like uh, human rights to natural entities such as forests and, and preserves and so on. And I was just wondering, Corey and Hiroyuki, whether you think this, uh, this uh, institution could either help prevent the financialization of nature or on the other way around uh, exacerbate it. And if you, if you could, would you please uh, Tell me a bit more about the, the process of financialization of nature because I'm not I'm not entirely familiar with the, the topic and I know you have researched it quite a bit, Corey. Okay, well if you want me to Hiroyuki, do you want to speak to that or do you want me to and then you jump in? Oh I'm okay. I maybe uh, you should clarify the uh, the notion of the uh, 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 financialization of nature. Yeah. Well, I'm really, I'm really familiar with the rights of nature and where that came from because it came out of when I was in Bolivia right after the failed COP conference in um, Copenhagen in 2009. In spring of that year, um, rallies in Bolivia had organized a get together to come up with an actual um, agreement that would, you know, um, mitigate climate change and protect biodiversity. So I went to Bolivia that spring with my, with my, and I 
took all my kids with me. And anyway, we went to that conference and it was um, indigenous led, I believe between 20, no, I, I think over 30,000 indigenous peoples came from all over um, global south and um, people came from all over the world, even the state of Bolivia, um, obviously not a, a rich country paid for a lot of American activists to come and participate in that conference. So they hosted this conference and out of that, at the end, um, rights of nature was a concept that had been developed. And then a bunch of, of NGOs sort of took over that concept. And since, and that was back in 2010. So I, I'm quite familiar with it. And since that time, it has been completely co-opted and used to sell the whole, um, new, now it's being called the new deal for nature, which they've collected, you know, millions of signatures for because people jump on and I need, I mean, it's never said what this new deal is, right? Just, Oh, we need a new deal for nature. Rah, rah, rah. Great. Everyone's on board. Sign, sign, sign. They never actually tell people what that is, which is the financialization of nature, which is the monetization of nature. So assigning monetary price to everything wild and free. And um, basically what you have are the corporations and institutions that have destroyed um, the, the nature, biodiversity up to this point will now be the new stewards of nature. Mm -hmm. Nature will be bought and sold and traded on Wall Street. Everything will be assigned a price, um, a monetary price and not just nature, but they're ex they've extended that to um, human capital and social capital. So even things like going to church can be recognized and commodified. Right, just like activism has been commodified, but in this instance, we're assigning a monetary price. And so these are, you know, this is what's coming forward. Um, water futures has just started on the stock exchange. I don't have the exact terminology or word, but I mean, you can find that. That was announced a few months ago. This is a whole, when you hear Klaus Schwab talk about the new capitalism that we have to create for the Great Reset, it's all about adding nature into the equation, adding human capital into the equation. So, I mean, I don't want to ramble on too much about it, but mm. this is, this is what it is. Uh, there's not any, just like red, um, the, what, um, when was that, that happened? I, I think around 2010 too, where all the reducing emissions through for, um, what is the acronym called? Anyway, it's, it was, um, a big thing that happened back in 2010, all the NGOs come out at the beginning and, you know, they sort of frame it like, oh, we're very, very concerned about this new marketing mechanism. It could harm Indigenous peoples. We really need to bring them to the table. And so it creates uh, um, a false pretense of opposition and dissent, but it's all completely controlled. And then it goes forward. And then next thing you know, all, all the NGOs are... They're not only on board, they're there to, to bring it forward. Um, if you know how these things work, that's, the, that's why they're funded. You know, trillions and trillions of dollars are funneled from corporate profits into foundations, into NGOs to, to do this. So it gives the element of um, concern and care over, over these things going forward. The financialization of nature is exactly the same. There's no opposition whatsoever, absolutely none. Everybody's on board. I mean, everyone, you can't find, you can't even find one single NGO against it. Survival, 
um, Stephen Corey Survival International and a handful of small groups from Africa, Global South are publicly opposing it and that's it. So this is what's happening. It's called the New Deal for Nature. It's led by World Economic Forum, um, World Wildlife Fund, Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, um, Conservation International, the Nature Conservancy. And then uh, let me think about all the NGOs, but at the at the helm of it, about 20. And um, yeah, there's no opposition. Everyone thinks it's great. No one understands what it is. No one, you know, very, very, very few people are talking about it. There are a handful of academics that write about it, not very many. And this is what's next. And instead we're talking about um, the fucking uh, royal family. So and Oprah and everything, right? These are major, massive, huge things happening. No one's yeah, even talking yeah. about them. Well, and the other thing, and then Hiroyuki, I want to get your response, but that it's this is the the crux of of the problem uh, uh, that of people's people's lack of skepticism. You know, they see Al Gore, they see Bill Gates on television, they see these people. Everything is framed as if these people are benign, that the World Wildlife Fund, that's a good thing, right? They're saving nature. Uh, all of these institutions and NGOs are always presented to, to sort of the, the not particularly inquisitive public as benign and, and, and trustworthy, and they have the best of intentions. And that's the problem, is to explain to people that this is simply not remotely true. And I'm not entirely sure how one does that, frankly. But Hiroyuki, you... you well, it's, it's really hard to do it because there's a structural impediment to the whole thing. You start to talk about all those things, you research and uh, you put things uh, on the table, people look at them, but there is a system to uh, uh, take them apart, uh, pick the good part, pick the keywords, uh, spin it to something else. And that's done with bigger platform. Um, so when the topic is bigger, there's more risk in getting co-opted. And th this, this is bound to happen hundred percent. So it's, uh, really a tough situation um, unless people realize this and put some sort of um, uh, mechanism to prevent um, um, this shaping of the uh, uh, whatever the topic uh, you know unless unless that happens it, it's really hard to uh, go forward because good intention good research um, would act as the helping hand because the topic needs to be uh, on the table for the um, ruling class to do something about it and um, like what well, one time I, I I posted on the social media and um, uh, about something I don't even remember what that was but um, somebody responded saying that um, you are propagandist <laughs> you're <laughs> accusing me of you know uh, he was accusing me of propagandist because he didn't know about the deception right 
So he learned about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, so I was the one who is telling the whole thing. So, um, you know, and somebody has to do this. And at the end, the authority would appreciate that the words are spread so that they can spin it. So right. this is a really, uh, um, it, it happens over and over. Good journalists, good researchers, they are the ones who get smeared. And no, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I saw something the other day. Somebody said, oh, why do you want to listen to those conspiracy theorists? Why don't what, you know, I, just listen to a doctor? And I said, but but the guy who I just quoted is a doctor. <laughs> and it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter. Um, Johan, what what you had something to say? Yeah, just, just let me continue on that. Uh, uh, because I, I think this uh, co-optation of the rights of nature concept is a, is a good example of the spin you're talking about, uh, Hiroyuki, because uh, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Because if you if you attribute rights to a, a forest preserve or something, well, then it, then it also has the right to, to sell itself for exploitation. Whereas if you... As many indigenous groups do, consider it an inviolable taboo to interact with it in a, in a destructive way. Then we can't really do it in that context. But if you rights is a um, it can function to as exacerbate exploitation. I think in this contemporary legal context, and also I think social media acts as a kind of force multiplier for spin. Uh, for any seeded points of view, uh, as I was trying to express earlier, then if, if we have a position that's perceived as, as value neutral by a majority of people, then if a, a small number uh, have a strong negative or, or, or positive relationship to this position, their interactions will uh, enforce and disseminate their evaluation because every Every time this position is present in social media, it's in a, a social context. It's, it's in an interaction with a vast number of people. So with social media, all you really need to do is to effectively seed the preferred reception or the preferred spin of a topic or a concept or, or a position. And social media will kind of do the rest of the work for you. Maybe this is simplistic, but I think there's something here. No, but it's absolutely true. And, and, and force multiplier for spin is a really great term. Um, great phrase. Uh, it, it, people read headlines, but it's also people function. Um, and, and I mean, I learned this in Hollywood, in a sense, the way people watch television, watch fictional drama, even is through pattern recognition. They're, people look mm -hmm. at an article and they see all the logos of all these NGOs and corporations and and you know people these corporations have spent a lot of money designing these logos and so the whole presentation feels familiar they remember you know live aid they remember all of these different things and in their head because it was always a superficial association in their head it's like oh that's a good thing this is a good thing this is one of those good things mm -hmm. they they don't know anything more than that that except it, they recognize the pattern, they recognize the style codes, they recognize the aesthetics and of how it is presented to them on the page, on the screen. Mm -hmm. 
and and um, and then they watch, you know, television. Um, and it was funny because I posted an article on Anderson Cooper this week, just that that he interned at the the CIA as a, after college, and that he's a Vanderbilt. You know, he comes from one of the wealthiest families in America in the world, and and um, it, it doesn't dent people's they there's no that they don't connect that to anything because at this point the majority of people out there don't associate um things in class terms you know they don't they don't think there's a ruling class even um vanderbilt oh well how fortunate for him he must have had a nice childhood um it, it, but it, there's no sense that 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 represents this acute you know lacerating inequality um, in which, you know, millions of children go to go to bed hungry every night in America. It's not these connections are never made. Um, and that 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 inequality is one of the reasons for that hunger. They don't make that connection. So um, so it is a it is a monumental problem. Um, the power of media, it it's um, and the fact that and the fact that there has been and this is actually the theme of my blog post. There's been this erosion of culture that 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 the that people don't see the meaning um, for even having a culture and that there has been an erosion of literacy and so forth and that people don't read and and on and on and on and of course many people the working class have to work longer for less pay than ever before and they're exhausted and they don't have time for it and then, um it's a perfect storm for this this growing um authoritarian takeover of the planet essentially and and that always sounds like cuckoo tin foil hat stuff but I don't know how else to put it, actually. Anyway, um, okay, uh, Corey, you have anything? Um, well, I wanted to add in the acronym I was trying to think of: reducing emissions from deforestation and forest de degradation. Um, red, what I was trying to think of before. Um, it's a, a UN program, a market mechanism, right? So everything, if it if it's not, and I mean, for that, again, we're taking. Um, we're depending the whole Paris Agreement is a reliant, you know, reliance on markets to solve the problem created by markets, right? So I just want to touch on that so people know what I was talking about. Um, the, it's the market economy that has caused all that, you know, and industrial civilization that has caused all these issues. Um, I want to touch on just for a moment, because I like how we touch upon how this is affecting children, the whole COVID thing. Um, I, I haven't been online for quite a while. I guess my last day on Twitter was March 4th, but I noticed, so just this quick thing I wrote for their health, Ch children forced to reduce oxygen intake into developing lungs, undergo vaccinations for a virus they are impervious to bond with tech with forced isolation while crime such as quote, sky high levels of fracking chemicals in children's bodies are accepted, ignored. And that was from um, a new series someone has written uh, um, in Pennsylvania about the harmful chemicals from fracking, how it's affecting children. Um, for example, a nine-year-old boy living near fracking while his levels of, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but a chemical called to, um, 
tololine, it's his levels were 91 times as high, um, 91 times higher than the level seen in average American. And so while we're pretending that this is for the good of the health of children and, um, you know, these oppressive measures forced on children, someone replied to that, not, you know, yeah, this is horrible or, you know, you know, this um, new article on how the fracking that no one cares about in children's bodies is horrific. Someone asked me, um, I'm here's what they say. I'm pretty sure they did studies and regular mass don't increase oxygen levels. Have you looked at competing claims to see whether your claim is evidence-based? And I just sort of thought, wow, you know, that's what you got from that. Like you're asking, Oh, are you sure putting um, material and, and fibers in mass over children's faces reduces their oxygen take. I mean, that seems pretty common sense, you know, that when you put something yeah. over your mouth, over your nose, you reduce your oxygen intake. And well, I mean, additionally, there <laughs> is this, the, the, I, I'm just, I find it staggering that, that the psychological implications are so minimized and so ignored for, I mean, the pandemic and the lockdowns have gone on for over a year now. A so, year and a half, John. Well, and children, that's an enormous chunk of a child's life, you know, um, a year. So children are are coming to experience, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, this fear in their parents, this anxiety that permeates everything um, that that they are exposed to. This is being normalized and and it is being internalized and children, you know, blame themselves for everything anyway. And and that's one of the roles of, of a parent is is to mitigate that and and um, teach children that they are not responsible for, you know, the wrongs of the world. Um, but it's coming to be completely normalized. People people are rather shockingly not everyone because again there are protests but it, but there's a split you know half the population at least is shockingly comfortable with the idea that the pandemic has no end in sight um yes. and and i just read because i keep hoping to you know they'll open the borders here and i can drive to sweden and you know um because i like this drive from here over to to sweden and um uh, and and no, they've just instituted a complete shutdown of the border. And um, I, you know, you can't cross it all in either direction. Even a lot of the workers that were going back and forth were granted exemption. That has been revoked. Um, and yet, for what reason? The reason is because maybe, maybe there's going to be a third wave and maybe with Easter coming, that's going to be the cause of this third wave. And so we're taking precautions by shutting everything down again. It's extraordinary. And yet, and yet so many people see nothing strange in this. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Really? I am. Um, uh, because I, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm really furious and and um and yet I you know I I find I have to be very careful about what I say. Um I'm probably too outspoken as it is here. But anyway, Johan. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it, you can think of it as 
we're in a sense in a society that uh, as per uh, Hiroyuki's article in Off Guardian recently that's kind of normalizing a form of insanity while uh, while dissent is being pathologized mm-hmm. it's astonishing yeah. yeah no well there's no question um dissent is pathologized and and um I, th- I think the longer this goes on, the more threatening dissent feels to a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, there are these these rather large protests. And and um, and I saw in Mexico that entire small towns have rejected vaccination um, and rejected calls for you know lockdowns and social distancing. There's enormous um, resistance to it. So. Um, there are people who who recognize that that we're reaching a like critical mass here. If things are not stopped, um, they they will never stop. And um, it's 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 that's what frightens me because I people have been you know indoctrinated and trained into this passivity that is extraordinary. And I can't, you know, for, for like teenagers and, and people in their early twenties, I can't imagine how kind of this social, they're so socially crippled now um, that, that it's hard for me to even imagine what I would be feeling if I were 19 today and, um, and couldn't go anywhere to meet groups of people you know, couldn't socialize. I mean, you know, I will say that I get reports from a lot of people all over the U.S. and, and different places, and, and there is resistance. I mean, there are people, a lot of people who are recognizing that, that their rights have been stepped on. And, um, and then, of course, Texas and Florida, this is another topic. Texas and Florida, conservative states, Republican states, are the two states that rejected the lockdown, opened up their states, um, and, and, you know, rejected all the, the mask wearing, social distancing, open businesses. And, um, I know that in Texas hospitalizations are down. Uh, so, so, um, you know, why is dissent coming from the right? Why are, you know, the, the, the group that's organized in suing the state in Germany is a right wing organization by and large. And yet they're absolutely correct in what they're doing. This is slightly mystifying to me. I have to admit, um, Corey. Well, recently, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before on, on the other podcast, but there is a Toronto ER doctor that a couple months ago, created a Twitter account and on it, he just made a comment, you know, sort of like, I can't believe all my um, co-workers are, are, you know, going on about this. Our ER is empty, you know, this is crazy. And then right away, the um, it started trending, media started calling him. He did a couple interviews and basically had to defend himself, you know, being called, you know, right wing and a Trump supporter. Meanwhile, he's <laughs> Canadian and it, it was so bad. I, the next time I went back on Twitter to see if he had any, you know, new things after listening to a couple of his very, very good and very, con- you know, quite conservative interviews, he actually deleted his account because he was just wow. absolutely attacked. Right. And, yeah. and I mean, this whole thing um, for scientists, doctors, all of a sudden, all their political affiliations come into play since when has that been the case? When we look at the climate 
scientists, um, you know, the whole climate community is led by these um, European, um, American, um, male dominated white scientists. No one has ever said, well, who do they, who, what party do they support? You know, um, are, are they right? Are they left? Are they what, you know, are they anarchists? I mean, no one's ever asked that until now. Right. And now everything's sort of framed in that way. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just insane. And then I, you know, building on what we're talking about, about the kids. Um, I don't know how many years ago it was. I led in our community, a, a group I worked with, we really, really worked hard and we tried to have our drive-throughs phased out in our city um, over five, we were looking at hoping to phase them out over five years. That was when climate change, people were starting to talk about it. And I was on one of the um, committees, the advisory committees for the city at that time. And it came across our desk, something about the drive-throughs and noise. And we said, noise, what about the pollution? So anyway, long story short, we created this campaign to, um, you know, eventually banned drive-throughs so they wouldn't be approved anymore the existing ones would be based out and turn it turned into a massive war against the industry absolutely massive it went from our city being discussed in councils right across Canada and the restaurant industry um, had a team of lawyers they changed our idling um, the government idling laws on the government website were changed by the industry we were just I mean we're we worked really hard. We packed the public meetings for the city hall time after time after time. I mean, we lost, but you've never seen such a fight by industry. And so what I took from that, we had our whole campaign was based on the health of children and people, but particularly children who are now, um, you know, basically there's asthma, um, you know, asthma epidemic, there's um, respiratory issues, especially in Southwestern Ontario, where we live, we live in a basin of pollution. And so we just had so many, so many health statistics and, and stats on how this was hurting our children. And I'll tell you, no one cared. I mean, the industry got what it wanted. It was all about economy, economics, it was all about business, it was all about um, the restaurants um, drive through doing 60% of their business at the drive through window. And <laughs> that the care and concern over children's bodies and their lungs and their health, there was nothing. No, no one cared at all. And so now jump forward to today to pretend that we're, we're so concerned with children that we're going to, you know, cover their faces and um, keep them isolated and put them online, you know, 12 hours a day. I mean, it's nonsense. No, it's, and, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And I just can't get over that people actually think that all of a sudden corporations and capitalists and politicians, which are in the pocket of them all actually now care about our children so much that we have to make them suffer to protect them. Right. Right. Well, you know, this is this is one of my pet topics. And 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 I always try to remind people that this is this kind of faux concern, this this, um, you know, outpouring of hand wringing about our children and 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 but everyone else. We don't you you know, don't you care about your grandparents? Don't kill your grandparents. Wear a mask um, that that 
they just uh, all you have to do is look at the statistics for hunger in the U.S. for food insecurity, and especially now the spikes in homelessness, the spikes in suicide, domestic abuse, alcoholism. Um, and now there's a spike in liver disease because of the alcoholism due to the lockdown. Um, but, but even before the lockdown, the statistics for food insecurity are staggering in the United States, are shocking. Um, but you're looking at a society in which something like one in four adults has taken antidepressants, prescriptive antidepressants. Um, it's, you know, Gabor Mate talks about this. It's a very unhealthy society. Um, and, and yet, if you watch the news and you watch media and you watch Hollywood, um, you get none of that. What you, what you get is a primetime interview with Harry and Meghan. Um, who need no last names or or um, introduction? Uh, it's it's again it's partly just this complete absence of class analysis of any sort that people refuse to think in those terms. Um, and the worst you know the worst offenders in all of this is that are that educated white thirty percent. Um, that is always the target demographic for Madison Avenue. Um, yeah, Johan. Yeah, unless uh, one of you others wanted to say something before we. No, go ahead. Okay, uh, so so was, I think it was C.J. Hopkins or maybe it was you, John, who spoke of this situation as a kind of medicalized tyranny. I'm not sure who, who it was, but I think this is an interesting concept of the entire. Um, um, situation we find ourselves in and it pars well with this um, this painting of political opposition as a kind of disease and I, I thought I'd just return to that very briefly because I had a reflection on it uh, because I think uh, the system uh, traditionally does one of two things to political opposition either you recuperate it in Marxist terminology and that is that you, you integrate this uh, uh, this opposition as a kind of uh, within the framework of the system's own propaganda as a form of loyal opposition. For instance, when, when the, the consequences of capitalism as uh, pollution and mass starvation is uh, framed as a problem, but, but as a problem that only further growth uh, or the structures of capitalism is capable of solving. Uh, the right. other option is to, uh, to pathologize it. You, you frame right. criticism as abnorm, insane and, and you use it as a kind of uh, a prop to legitimize the normalcy of uh, the uh, consensus reality of the system. And, and I mean, you saw this in the Soviet Union very clearly. There's a lot of discussion about how psychiatry was a, a political tool for, for undercutting the political opposition and so on. But, but I think what's uh, disconcerting about the current situation is that you don't really have any, there is no official dogma to contradict as it was in the Soviet Union. There's, a, there's an Orwellian character to the situation because you now have a narrative which is in flux that has a kind of psychotic unpredictability in terms of what you must assent to. And that is, I think, a new kind of phenomenon. There is no stable orthodoxy that if you contradict it you're insane you don't really know what's uh, what are the principles you you 
tomorrow that you're going to have to assent to. And I, I was wondering if this is something you recognize in some sense, uh, and, and, and I mean, something like this is going to affect the vulnerable, especially children very strongly, because this unpredictability of your environment is, is a really harmful uh, psychological factor. Well, I, I think this comes back to a couple of things. And, and, and um, one is, again, that there is a default position that people have been indoctrinated into, which is to trust the media. I mean, the, if you appear on television, you um, accrue a certain legitimacy and a certain authority. And, you know, it's the idea of experts again, too, which is, you know, a whole subtopic onto itself. But um, because you will hear people, I mean, one of the slogans is trust the science. What does, what does that mean? Which science? Again, you know, I, I post things by doctors and, 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 scientists and people will call you a, a conspiracy theorist um and then the next in the next sentence say trust the science they they just parrot these slogans because they really don't know what any of this means um and they they you know they've been conditioned to to not question um things much further it's it's something they learn on the job don't make waves um you know don't don't be the squeaky wheel because, you know, you won't get promoted or whatever. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole slew of things, but the power of the media is extraordinary and it controls the narrative and it controls the perspective on all of this. And, um, and, and that's how people learn about everything, history, um, uh, science, whatever they've learned it um, on screens. They, they, they don't have the time or the inclination or the patience or something to do any research. They don't know how to do research largely. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, it, it warrants a mention that, you know, Google is extraordinary. If you go to the Google search engine or any of the major search engines, they're incredibly biased and they direct you to, you know, um, you know, fact checkers and things that are owned by the system. They don't, send you to leftist sites or subversive sites so-called or or they don't send you to Corey Morningstar's blog or to my blog or to anything of that sort um, they direct you to corporate um, outlets and, and news organs and the New York Times and so forth and if you point out to people well but but we know we you know it's been proven that the New York Times lies repeatedly. They lied in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. They lied during the Vietnam era, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this makes no dent for some reason um, in, in, in this sort of wholehearted embrace of the official consensus. People are much more comfortable with this official consensus. It it, again, this goes back to what Corey said earlier, it gives them purpose in a sense because they feel part of this anointed um, community of, of the righteous. And it's that, as you said, Johan, the pathologization of dissent. You, to be dissenting is to be dangerous. You hear this all the time. This, these people, these anti-vaxxers, these Trumps, these people are dangerous. 
And you're saying, but I'm, but I'm not anti-vaccination. I'm simply questioning this vaccination. I'm questioning why, you know, children and the elderly are being given a vaccine um, for a virus with such an extremely low fatality um, index. What I don't, you know, but, but logic is, is utterly beside the point. And, you know, I mean, mentioning the Soviet Union, I mean, this is another topic. Hiroyuki and I have talked about this, so maybe Hiroyuki, you can comment on this. But, um, you know, the Western propaganda against any socialist or communist country has been extraordinary and gone on for 80 years. Um, and and uh, it, it is... It is something that I see almost on a on a daily basis. There's the, this the the assumption that um, still, and you certainly see it in Hollywood all the time. The assumption that that socialism is evil. The villains on on you know um, entertainment films and television are always um, Russians or Chinese or uh, you know Serbs. Uh, the, you know, and, or Muslims. Uh, these are these are the villains de jure. But the anti the anti communist uh, propaganda has been profound and shaped much of Western consciousness. I think. Anyway, Hiroyuki. Yeah. Well, uh, that is uh, that is true, and uh, um, um, it's so deeply seated. Uh, we don't even think about it, but. Um, um, sometimes things pop up and I got the other day I was looking at uh, social media post things and I, uh, I came across a couple of people posting about this uh, uh, Soviet uh, defector in uh, uh, I think it was Reagan era uh, getting interviewed by uh, uh, I forgot what that was I sh- I sh- um the name of the defector was Yuri um, Bezmenov. <laughs> really sure, something like that. And um, but he was basically um, uh, explaining about the uh, indoctrination of uh, the method um, um, Soviet used against the U.S. population. Uh, how um, they are. Uh, immersed in uh, Marxism and uh, um, Leninist Marxism and uh, their ideology is um, uh, compromised to be subservient to the um, 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 outside forces basically and but it it was interesting because he was speaking uh, in 84 and he even um, mock uh, Mondale, the uh, political opponent of Reagan. So if you know the history and the context, we know what is going on. His role was there to demonize Soviet Union and Soviet Union was destroyed. And what came after that was neoliberal um, total destruction of the fabric of the uh, society in Russia. And a lot of people suffered. Yeah. And what we are experiencing today is sort of like that. We are um, getting destroyed 
and we are being fed anti-communist propaganda, of course. So everything sort of, you know, uh, Marge, and we can understand it, but it's really hard to see, you know, people, you know, yeah. Well, one of the one of the things about the it's interesting because there's a there's a sort of segue here back to Africa because one of the things I try to point out to people is that um, well into the '90s, Dick Cheney referred to Mandela as a terrorist, um, and during African independence starting in the 50s, um, the Soviet Union, and then especially Cuba, um, fought on the side of African independence. Uh, and it's why Africans to this day um, love Fidel. Um, there was an extraordinary outpouring of, of grief uh, when, when he died recently. And um, I guess it's not so recent anymore, but anyway. Um, and and the U.S. and U.K. in particular fought against African independence. I mean, the U.S. and U.K. had Lumumba assassinated. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. backed every dictator they could find uh, and, and worked against all the African independence movements. And Africans haven't forgotten this. So, you know, you, you trace this back to the history of colonialism, something that is absolutely absent from most American history textbooks. I mean, there's this just it's just um, this black hole, this missing chapter or five or six chapters, uh, because you you see the residue of this. Um, you know, speaking of the British royal family, I mean, the Queen was a fervent supporter of apartheid South Africa. She adored Ian Smith in Rhodesia. That was her favorite tea partner, um, along with Pinochet. Uh, you know, that, they're rabid racists, that family. And, and uh, the, the colonial footprint, the colonial fingerprint of um, exists in Africa to this day. And so we're seeing what is the new scramble for Africa in a sense. But, um, you know, this is a continent that, that is still trying to emerge from the horrors of, of colonial occupation. And, uh, and yet again, you know, most, most Americans don't see this. And so the, you know, the communists are seen as evil and you try to point out, but they fought for African independence. You know, they, these were the, the Soviets, the Cubans um, were on the side of African independence, but, but this is, this is like a, um, just a, an absent footnote um, that is never mentioned somehow. Um, anyway, Hiroyuki, yeah. Well, I mean, that um, sort of answers uh, your question, why um, all the uh, resistance are only coming from the right. Because yeah, that's interesting. where the, uh, you know, the channel was still open because fascism, uh, right-wing activism, those things are part of capitalism. It's a, you know, a very, very crucial tool of capitalism. So um, again, it goes back to the structural problems uh, we have here and uh, and again it, it's hard to talk about these things because well things boy, yeah no i remember i don't mean to interrupt you um 
I remember the when Milosevic was arrested and I was part of the artists call a group of artists signed on to defend Milosevic because of an illegal arrest. And the U S was, was helping to dismantle the, the former Yugoslavia federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And, uh, the beginning of that trial at the Hague was on the nightly news. Um, what's her name? Um, Jamie Rubin's wife, Christine Amanpour, um, and Rubin was, you know, Clinton's right-hand man. Uh, she was reporting the trial of the century. And then the trial began and went so badly that suddenly it was off the evening news. It was just absolutely, it was never mentioned again. Um, that was when they were still allowing Milosevic to defend himself. And he was destroying the prosecution. Um, he had been trained as a lawyer for one thing, but, uh, the the all of this stuff was debunked eventually on page 27 a few years ago now that milosevic is long dead um they acquitted him <laughs> nobody even heard about it um but i try to point out to people because they still believe you know the 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 fiction about you know the balkan wars milosevic is the butcher of the balkans all of this stuff i point out to people that harold pinter and peter honke both of whom have won nobel prizes now for literature both of them were on that artists group with me and a number of other people um uh and and but uh, you know it's one of those things that that uh if you watch hollywood films serbs as i mentioned earlier serbs are still the villains um, not not uh, Croats who have a long history of fascist sympathy or, um, you know, uh, Albanians or anybody else. It's always the Serbs. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, I think we're, we're getting back to Neil Postman, as Corey mentioned in the in the beginning. And I, I just have a, a brief quote from his, his book that we talked about that I think is relevant in this context. And I mean, his... Uh, a major argument, I think, is that the framing of information as entertainment is, uh, is central to our <clears throat> developing inability to critically reflect and, and think. Uh, so the quote goes, uh, we Americans seem to know everything about the last 24 hours, but very little of the last 60 centuries or the last uh, 60 years. Terence Moran, I believe, lands on the target in saying that with media and structure is biased towards furnishing images and fragments, we are deprived of access to an historical perspective. In the absence of continuity and context, he says, bits of information cannot be integrated into an intelligent and consistent whole. We do not refuse to remember, neither do we find it exactly useless to remember Rather, we are being rendered unfit to remember, for if remembering is to be something more than nostalgia, it requires a contextual basis, a theory, a vision, a metaphor, something within which facts can be organized and patterns discerned. The politics of image and instantaneous news provides no such context, is in fact hampered by attempts to provide any. A mirror records only what you are wearing today. It is silent about yesterday. With television, we vault ourselves into a continuous incoherent present. And I think this incoherent present is also related to this incoherent uh, framework that we are supposed to abide with and, and subject ourselves to, I think. 
Right. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about the lockdowns and all the, the government policies, advisories and health advisories and travel advisories and restrictions is that they're often, if not usually, incredibly vague. Um, it's like disseminating confusion as much as anything else. I ask people, well, so what is what are you allowed to travel from here? To, and people don't know. Um, and and the rules vary from place to place. And I can't keep track of what the what if I'm on orange alert or red alert or whatever it is um, in Norway. I have I have no clue from day to day, frankly. So uh, I, I and I suspect that's intentional to, to some degree. Um, it's it's the the um, I don't know, politics of confusion. Anyway, we're kind of maybe getting towards the end. Corey, do you want to add anything? Mm, I guess I just wanted to add on to what we we're talking about, um, amusing ourselves to death. I think we mentioned that before we started um, recording. So for the audience, I'm not sure, you know. Did what? I think we started talking about amusing ourselves to death before we started recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the audience doesn't think they missed a part of it. We, I don't think we discussed that um, at the beginning. But yeah, I liked what um, Johan had to say. And then building upon that, even this whole um, Harry and, and Megan thing, I, I don't have a TV. I don't have a mobile phone. And I already know all this stuff that I didn't even want to know. And so how did I, how do I, how do I know, right? How does this stuff reach us? That's how powerful it is. And I saw um, just glimpsing at, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe 20 emails from what day was it? I think it was, let me look here. Okay. So on March 9th on, in my emails, I have a subscription to the Telegraph because I had to log in to, to, to read something one time that's researching. And so I received um, an article, the, the subject line, the Oprah interview, the fallout. And now just researching, here's another one, just from within the last hour from the Telegraph again, Prince William speaks out on Harry and Meghan. That day I was actually outside, working outside in, in my gardens and my neighbor told me about it. <laughs> right. He, yeah. he started talking about it. Um, like not, not loving it, sort of ridiculing it, saying it was the highest broadcast Oprah or highest, um, readership, whatever you call it, um, show ever, right. In the history of Oprah, more people watch that show than, than, than any other show in history. Wow. And, and then on my Twitter today, there's, um, if I log in to Twitter on the right hand side, what does it say? It's another royal family um, notification, right? We're just inundated. And even if you're not looking for it, you're inundated, you're clubbed over the head with it. And that's just exactly like the whole pandemic. You're just right. clubbed over the head with, you know, like um, numbers and cases and vaccine. Like every time I turn on CBC radio, all I hear, it's just exactly like the war on terror after 2001. Absolutely. Exactly Absolutely. the same, right? Yep. Just switch the switch the phrases, the terms. Now it's the war on the vaccine, but it's exactly the same thing. And, and yet, and yet, we don't see that. We don't make that connection. No, no, people don't. People don't. Um, and and 
you know, maybe we'll kind of wrap up here sort of on that note. But but I think that's the fundamental, if not essential problem uh, in 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 all of this. But, you know, I hasten to say again, there are a lot of people that distrust this narrative. There are a lot of people who reject it and don't believe it. But they're, but they're afraid to speak out. They're afraid to be stigmatized. Nobody wants to be called a conspiracy theorist. And I understand that. Um, and, and probably if I were in the U.S., I would, I would feel a little more trepidation um, about saying some of the things I say. I'm Maybe not. But, but I do understand it. You know, and, and it's we're seeing this rehabilitation of fascism in media, too. That's another thing. And maybe we'll talk about that next time. Um, it's being that's the a new revisionist history is is unfolding as we speak that. And I see little little clues dropped all the time. Um, and and it soon is not going to be a pejorative term at all to be called a fascist. Uh, and, and I think the, you know, the, the final problem though is somehow to, to introduce people to the idea of class struggle that, that, that this is, this is a core problem a, a, a core feature of of your political understanding and if you don't grasp it um you are going to be prey to to the propaganda machine and um anyway okay concluding thoughts from anybody well i have something to wrap up um one more thought so all the you know what do you call it? Like the spectacle about the royal family this week. Um, everyone feeding off of that and just everything surrounding that. At the same time, in the media, we have in Canada a big, um, what's it called? Me to We scandal. It's an NGO, a Canadian NGO in Canada. The founders um, go back, they're connected to the World Economic Forum and, you know, elite ruling class ties. Anyway, they're in a scandal with the liberal government, the Trudeau government over um, Trudeau was doing concerts, concert, like concert. Um, it, it's basically like a youth. It's a lot like global citizen, right? Um, they, the demographic is youth. They target the youth and it's all about um, basically funded by corporation, corporate corporations to get their brand into the minds of the youth um, as lifelong consumers, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, what I wanted to say is there's a lot about that, about that scandal in the media, but it's funny because with the royal family so prominent in the media right now, there's no connection between the two. We to me is massive in the UK. There's a UK arm of me to we. And the royal family is firmly embedded within that. And it's just sort of funny that there's no connection made at all between the right. two, right? It's just um, their role in Canada, the NGO in Canada, we to me in Canada, and nothing about the, the, <laughs> the ties with the royal family and the UK arm of me to we. So again, you know, like how just the propaganda serves a, a particular agenda. 
Yeah, that's a great place to close, actually. That's that's great. All right. Um, this was very good. Thank all of you again um, for your time. And uh, thanks to Jack Littman, who will uh, touch this up for us. And uh, I will talk to you guys soon. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.